what does it take physiologically to race a grand tour? The folks over at Whoop know throughout the Giro d'Italia, Whoop is partnering with EF Education First Easy Post and Velon to provide live heart rate data from pro riders during the race broadcast, as well as recovery data after each stage. But Whoop isn't just for the pros. Whether you're an avid cyclist or just getting started, Whoop helps you better understand your body. Whoop isn't just another fitness tracker. It measures your vital signs like heart rate variability and resting heart rate, and it also gathers a full breakdown of your sleep. Whoop takes these data points and provides you with recommendations and personalized feedback so you can accomplish your fitness goals. For example... Whoop can help you decide whether to go on that big, hard ride or if it's a day for an easy spin. Now, Whoop just released its all-new 4.0, and it's smarter and smaller and designed with new biometric tracking, such as skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. Right now, listeners of the podcast can get 15% off on Whoop. Go to whoop.com. That is W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter code VELONEWS at checkout for your discount. Thanks so much to Whoop for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Velo News podcast. Fred Dreyer here. Blast from the past, former editor-in-chief, now at Outside Magazine. Um, I am doing some filling in on the podcast for the next couple of weeks. Hope to have an update for you all in a few days about um, the future of the podcast, but I'm going to be here talking with uh, Andrew Hood, Betsy Welch, some of the other Bella News editors, doing some uh, interviews from the world of cycling um, and yeah, we're going to continue to cover the sport. Uh, we have a great episode for you today. Um, Andy Hood is going to check in and we're going to go over uh, what's going to happen the final few days of the Giro d'Italia. We've seen some twists and turns here in the last week and seen Richard Carapaz and Ineos really take charge of the race. So Andy's going to come on and provide some hot takeage and some perspective going forward. Um, then... We're going to have a pretty frank discussion about the biggest story going on in cycling right now, which is the Moriah Wilson murder tragedy. Um, if you've been reading VelaNews.com, you know about this story. But I wanted to give the listeners a bit of a warning um, that we are going to discuss this the second half of the show. Obviously, this is a terrible, awful, very sad story. And if you do not feel like... Um, hearing about it and hearing discussion and update on it, which I do not blame you. This is a very rough week in America right now. Um, I just wanted to give you all the heads up to, you know, hey, no no harm, no foul if you want to check out after uh, the Giro d'Italia discussion, but we're going to be talking about that case as well. So uh, let's get to it. Joining me now from the man cave in Northwestern Spain. It's Andrew Hood back on the podcast. Andy, it's good to see you. Good to see you again, Freddie, back in the hot seat in the podcast. Yeah, I was at the uh, first half of the Giro, and I've been home uh, about a week now watching uh, watching it from TV like everybody else. I mean, most years I do the entire Giro from start to finish. We had uh, some different people come in for the second part of the race. And you know, to tell the truth, I don't miss it that much because I've seen the drives that my colleagues have had to do the last week. And and some of the logistical challenges that uh, happened during the Giro d'Italia only at the Giro. For example, this year, 
we kept getting stuck behind what was called the E-Race. They had the E-Giro. So every day they had about uh, 75 just kind of fans, really, just people racing the, the Giro course on e-bikes. Big sponsorship deal, big promotion with the Giro. But every day the journalists would get stuck behind yeah. this E-Race. E, e People were not happy. We missed the buffet every day because of the E-Race. It was terrible. Come on, E-Race. Uh, yes, of course, the Giro E. We wrote about that on the site a few years ago where it's basically like people doing sort of timed segments on some of the climbs on e-bikes. I feel like they're still – they still got to dial in the racing format for e-bikes out there. I don't know if Grand Tour follow-alongs is the right way to go. Uh, I'm with you, though. I have been following your colleagues, Cy Boshe and Jim Cotton, as they've been updating their respective social media handles. And, well, I, I, I'm with you, you know, not great to be stuck in traffic jams. I will say, God, the stunning has been completely beautiful. Scythe has been posting, you know, some of the amazing meals she's been eating. I've definitely like been living vicariously through their social media and feeling the bike race media envy that hits me from time to time now that I'm not a full-time member of the bike race media, uh, of people just being in such beautiful locations. And I feel like in the last week, you know, some of these big Alpine stages, some of these big mountain stages, that's really when the Giro d'Italia comes alive. And I feel like we we would do a disservice if we didn't talk about, um, bef you know, before we get to the stages to come, if we didn't talk about, oh, the wild and wacky stage uh, the the hilly stage. It was sort of the like um, Lombardia style stage. What was that? Stage fourteen, Torino. Oh my gosh, that was that was some thrilling bike racing. Yeah, it's just those kinds of stages that really kind of throw a wrench in the in the plans of the GC teams. That's when these races really can come alive, right? Because the way the the racing is controlled so much these days with the big teams, that's changed a little bit now that there's only eight riders as opposed to nine. It's actually had quite an impact on the. And the dynamics for a grand tour having that one less rider but that was a day where you know some bad weather is when there as well uh racing just started to blow up it was very quickly kind of uh all the big riders isolated without many without many teammates and that's the kind of racing that people love and you get that in a grand tour you know once you kind of get in that was like really at the end of that second week and once you get a good week or two of racing in the legs that's when you can really finally see riders started to crack and like you said, that stage really set it up because it wasn't just a tempoed climb, 15 kilometers at a certain part of a certain grade, and they could kind of measure their efforts. That was up and down, twisting, turning. It was like Liège, Lombardia, but after racing for two weeks before going to the race. So that's what I think really sets up a Grand Tour to have at least one or two of those kinds of stages across the three weeks. And that stage has framed the GC picture that we have. That was the day that uh, Richard Carapaz took the pink jersey from Juanpa Lopez, Trek Segafredo, and he, and Carapaz has held it since. And, you know, Ineos has been looking very strong. They've been shepherding him. Carapaz has looked very strong. You know, I think a lot of us came into this race seeing him as sort of the 1A, 1B favorite. And, um, you know, I, I have to give credit to Carapaz for riding so smartly since then, but also for Ineos for sort of reviving the old sky Ineos train, which, you know, we've seen the last few years doesn't work at the Tour de France anymore, but it really still, still seems to work at the Giro d'Italia. You know, if things uh, go according to Ineos's plan over these next few days and they do win the Giro, that's going to be what, four, five Giros in the last six years, basically 
every Giro except for the one that Richard Carapaz won for Movistar of the last four years. So, Andy, a, a question I have for you is why why does the uh, Ineos game plan, like the, the freaking Froome train, you know, from 2014, 2015, why does that still work at the Giro where it doesn't work at the Tour? Well, one name, Tade Pogaccia. Tade, well, Tade Pogaccia is not at this Giro. And Chris Froome is, we know what happened to Chris Froome, of course. Egon Bernal obviously had that horrendous crash in, in January. He's not back defending his title. But Pogacar just stands above the rest of the peloton. Uh, even, the, even the, I think, the, the Froome train at its peak would have had a hard time beating Pogacar uh, head-to-head. Froome even said as much. Uh, someone asked him, I think, last year, it said, hey, do you think you could have beaten Pogacar at your peak? And he was like, ooh, that would have, be a big, big ask because Pogacar is this kind of that next level rider that is re- re- really re- rewriting uh, modern cycling. Uh, Enios and Sky did it for 10 years. You know, they had that singular rider, that Chris Froome, where you could put a whole team around him and really dominate a race like the Tour. Um, you know, Enios had that great track record at the Tour. They won uh, eight yellow jerseys with four different riders across nine years. Uh, Wiggins, Froome, Garen Thomas, and Egan Bernal, maybe at seven, not eight. But, uh, you know, pretty impressive track record there. And they'd be able to translate that, you're right, into the Giro. Um, why? Because I think, well, going back to 2018, Froome won with a great comeback in the last week of the Giro that year. Then you had Teo win two years ago and then Bernal last year. Um, you know, why are they winning at the Giro and not at the Tour anymore? And I think you have to just look at Tade Pogacar. He, he is like a one-man wrecking machine. Yeah, and the lineups haven't been as strong at the Giro d'Italia. And people, you know, teams are saving their big guns and their best riders for the Tour de France. But I wonder also if the terrain plays into it where it's, you know, the, the Tour has experimented with different types of terrain and punchier terrain, whereas the Giro, you know, it continues to have this long, drawn-out course, some of these big 200-kilometer days, these big, crushing climb after climb after climb. And, you know, when I've been watching Carapaz and Ineos ride these last few days, it's it just has been very reminiscent of a style of racing from, you know, seven, eight years ago. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that if they are to win this Giro and, you know, have, yeah, you know, Froome, Teo, Bernal, and Carapaz, four different Giro winners of the last five years, that's a real feather in Ineos's cap. And, you know, Ineos is searching for feathers these days because they're not getting a ton of them at the Tour de France. But I also feel like it's a pretty big feather in the cap of Richard Carapaz because when he did win the Tour de, when, win the Giro d'Italia, um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it was an asterisk Giro because he definitely, he won that thing outright. But there was some trickery involved. There was some racing intelligence involved. It wasn't like he just squashed everyone beneath his boot. And I feel like what we're seeing here is a more dominant ride. This is the ride of a more mature winner. This isn't a guy who's sort of like waiting for riders to look at each other and then, you know, open up the can of whoop ass. This is a guy who is like calling on his team and like riding efficiently and and putting his best foot forward when he needs to. So I don't know how you feel about it, but if Carapaz is to win it, to me, this is sort of the, this is the star making uh, Grand Tour win. Yeah, it's an interesting observation because in fact, uh, Carapaz the other day was just saying that 
he feels like he's much stronger in this Giro than when he won in 2019. Because you're right, because you remember in that year, that was the famous uh, stage when um, not only was a the dynamic there between Landa and Karapath on uh, Movistar, so they kind of, Karapath was like the second lieutenant who kind of like broke the team ranks and attacked. And that was the same day that uh, Nibali and uh, Roglic were like kind of eyeing each other up. And they at least let Karapaz get too far up the road. And the guy's a great climber and he can just fend these guys off and had enough gap to hold on to win that Giro. Um, but it's been interesting though to watch Karapaz, you know, in this Giro, you're right, he's been slotted in. He's, with, he's surrounded by the Ineos might and power of the richest team in the Peloton. But he still really hasn't been able to ride anybody off of his wheel. We'll see going into these this final weekend where we get into these big monster climbs, especially on the Saturday's penultimate stage, uh, Paso Pordoi and uh, Marmolada. You know, that's, those are the classic climbs at the Giro. But even like, you know, even looking at the tour, you know, last year the tour, you know, he tried to match Pogacar. He really got blown away that day in the Alps. And he, yeah, chapeau to him. He ended up finishing third. But I don't know. I'm not. I'm not totally sold on on the Carapaz as like the next big Grand Tour winner. He has a great track record. Remember, he finished second to Roglic a couple of years ago at the Vuelta, and you know, had he had that last climb and that last day been like maybe even a kilometer longer, he probably would have won that Vuelta because he had dropped Roglic. No doubt about it. Carapaz is like a world class rider, but in my eyes, he's still a touch below, uh, even coming close to touching uh, uh, Pogacar. And is he the guy that's going to carry the future of Ineos? You know, I don't know. I, I'm just not convinced that he's like that kind of like Froome, Pagachar, you know, giant Grand Tour, giant killer rider. He's going to win a lot of races, and he does win a lot of races. And the rumor is he's going back to movie star next year anyway, so we'll see. <laughs> I love it. He's, he's not like Tom Brady. He's like, uh, um, he's, you know, he's like the quarterback that was, he's the Drew Bledsoe. Like he's he's pretty good, but he's not going to win you uh, eight uh, Super Bowls. I, I I'm with you on that. But if all the stars align correctly, which they have here, you know he can write his name down in the history books as a potential two time uh, Italia winner. So hoodie, I am definitely going to be watching on Saturday. That's stage twenty, the penultimate stage, last big mountain stage. You know it's in the Dolomites. It um, hits some of these big classic climbs, and it finishes up to the Marmolada. And I have a very just fond history with that. Um, my wife and I, when we were on our honeymoon back in 20, I don't even remember anymore because time is a, is a circle. Time is a constant spinning circle. And I don't even know, you know, that was pre-pandemic, pre-child. Uh, we uh, spent a day hiking on the Marmolada. And if anyone has a chance to ever go over there, it's awesome. It's this big snow covered peak. I believe Marmolada is marmalade. It looks kind of like marmalade. It has this huge glacier on it, and it's just – it's gorgeous. You could take a little funicular up there, hike around on the snow, like all good Italian hiking destinations. There's like a refugio way up there where you can get amazing pasta and beer and just get nice – Get a nice little buzz going on at high altitude before walking down or taking the funicular down. But yeah, we have three giant passes, the San Pellegrino, the Paso Pardoy, and then the uh, the Marmolada, the, the Fidea. I think the last time they went up there, it was just nuking rain too. And in fact, the last stage that was supposed to go over this route uh, got canceled because it was like 
just total nuking rain. So I, I, I mean, this this has Ineos domination written all over it, but really it's going to be for the win, um, this last climb. And if Jai Hindley, who's se- sitting in second place at two seconds, or Landa, who's in third place, um, if they can do anything. Yeah, I think that's the expectation. Everything's going to come down to this climb. There's the final time trial in uh, Verona. Pretty hard little course, actually. We raced on that course a few years ago. Has like a little Cat 4 climb. It's like climbs a couple hundred meters of altitude, a little bit steeper climb going up than it looks in the road book. It's like 6Ks going down. So I was talking to some sport directors the other day, and they were everyone was kind of saying this was even like referring to Almeida, who was like uh, the better time trialist of the GC guys. And he got zapped by uh, COVID, so he's out of the frame. So he, the, the speculation was that Almeida could like recapture some lost time there in the final time trial. But in terms of Carapaz versus Lando versus Hindley, I mean, no one's going to really take so much time back on that final time trial that really changed the GC, unless it's still a three-second difference coming into the final stage, which I highly doubt. But it's going to be who has the legs. And, uh, you know, the real question is, I think that Carapaz will have the advantage because of the altitude. He's a altitude native, lives in the, in, the, in the Andes in Ecuador. I think his hometown is perched at 2,000 meters or higher. And uh, Henley, mate, he's, a, he's an Australian boy. He's down there living on the beach. So I think that's going to bite him a little bit on that stage. Just, you know, Carapaz is a rider who thrives at altitude. I've been very impressed with Henley throughout this Giro. Um, he deserves to get into pink um, just for how well he's raced. Bohr has been a great story this year as well. I mean, of course, Peter Sagan left the team. Everyone kind of thought, well, you know, Bora's going to lose their mojo. A bunch of uh, kind of stage hunters not really going to do much. And they've really come out swinging this year, really. Uh, some impressive results. And they've gone really well during this Giro. And uh, I think, you know, he's going to get a podium spot. He could still win the race. We'll see what happens. Um, I think on that last day, it's like whoever has the reserves and the legs can make a big, you can really make a big difference on a climb like that. I feel like between those two dudes, though, my my money is on Carapaz as the better time trialist. So I would assume that Hindley's going to try to do something on the mountains. Because, you know, I mean, how much time do you think Hindley would need on Carapaz to beat him in a time trial, just ballpark. What, what would he need? Yeah, I mean, uh, the number that's going around is, I mean, maybe a minute, a minute. People are talking a minute with Almeida. I mean, maybe Carapaz versus Hindley, maybe, you know, 30, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. I mean, Hindley needs a minute to be sure. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe 30 seconds. Eight, it's an 18, 17, 18 kilometer time trial. You know, on a good day, a rider like that could get two seconds a kilometer. Not a specialist, not really a course where you're going to lose or gain too much time. So uh, maybe you could still, winning margin could be 30 to 45 seconds. But I'm also curious to see how uh, Landa could do. You know, oh, Mikel Landa, you know, he, he was uh, 2015, really emerged as a Grand Tour candidate. He's third that year, won a stage. And he was really hyped up to be like the next big Spanish star. And, uh, you know, through bad luck, crashes, a lot of team dynamics. He was at Sky a couple of years, you know, got slotted into that Froome train. He was fourth one year at the tour. He's been fourth twice at the tour now. One year he was fourth, lost the podium by one second. 
And I remember at the time he was saying, ah, it doesn't really matter. I'm here right to firm. It doesn't matter if I'm third or fourth. I'm just glad I did the job for the team. But he later said, man, you know, now I realize, because when you're young, everything's coming easy. You don't realize how hard it is to achieve these things. So he said, now, he goes, I really regret that one second. And the guy who got that podium was Bardet, who was also looking great in this Giro, and he got uh, sick and had to pull out. Yeah, and it's a big gap from Landa back to Nibali. So it does really look like, you know, Carapaz, Hindley, and Landa. It would be cool to see Landa on a podium. I mean, I think we a lot of us remember that magical Giro d'Italia when he was riding for, uh, oh, it was the Italian. You know, Aru. Was it a Aru? It was absolutely yeah, yeah. Aru. Holy cow. Yeah. We can't believe yeah, we just yeah. forgot Fabio Aru's. Um, a note he's on already Hindley. gone. He's already gone. A note on Hindley. I'm with you on Hindley. I think this is a this is a really cool story for him too because you know so many of the sports takes you hear these days talking about the 2020 season in general. You know the COVID season was sort of like a well you know yeah that so and so won but maybe an asterisk because like training schedules got thrown out of whack and we're doing the Giro in November and you know yeah the Lakers won but it was in the bubble and does it even really matter you know and so I think a lot of people have been looking at some of those results from 2020 in cycling and sort of like poking them and prodding them and being like do they hold up you know like is so and so really like it does do they deserve to be on the short list of best cyclists or best wins out there and i think that within that realm that 2020 giro is the one that people kind of poke and prod at you know i mean no not to take anything away from those guys they did that race they won you know teo won it it was a great race, but you know, Teo has been a worker bee since then. And Jai didn't have a very good 2021. He dropped out of the Giro. He was sick a lot. He didn't really score any results. So I was pretty psyched to see him win a stage this year and really get back at that top level of climbing because that's, con- you know, that's confidence building, but that's also confirmation. It's like, yeah, 2020 wasn't a fluke. This guy actually, he's this guy really has it, you know? Yeah. It's also been interesting to see, uh, this Giro is a lot of attrition and a lot of riders that, uh, you know, cause the list, cause this year's Giro, you know, didn't, this year's Giro to me didn't really have that big marquee name. Like every year the Giro seems to be able to draw in a big ride, like the Contador back in the day, he'd ride the Giro every couple of years, you know, Froome finally came in uh, 2018, you know, Sagan finally came. Uh, they'd always have kind of like that marquee name, you know, Bernal was there last year. And this year's starting field to me really didn't have kind of that blockbuster name, but it had actually a very, very competitive field. And I thought it was going to be actually a great race and it has been a good race, but you know, we only have really two or three candidates left at the end of the day. And, hey, to have a grand tour divided by three seconds and even within a minute of the, uh, the third place, the pink Jersey going into the final weekend, that, that says a lot about how tight this race has actually been. But looking back at how many big names have kind of, burned out, you know, Dumoulin, uh, Bardet, Wilco Kelderman. Uh, there's been a few more. So the weeding out of this Giro, I think, has been, I mean, every Grand Tour has that. But it was kind of sad to see some of these names kind of just flame out earlier than they did. But hey, man, who's there? Nibali's in fourth, you know. It's his last Grand Tour. It's his last Giro. You know, he announced that uh, in his hometown of Messina, uh, on the first kind of week there, the Giro was there when it happened. And, uh, you know, the Italians have been wringing their hands, you know, what are we going to do after, after Nibali? They don't really have anybody coming down the pipe. Um, 
you know, so all the Italians are going to be hoping for the big Nibali miracle this weekend. And, you know, who knows, man, it might happen. All, all he needs is to do is get rid of one of those two guys and finish on the podium. And man, who knows when Nibali, man, you never know, man. I don't, he hasn't shown really anything that he would have the legs to like drop these guys, but you never know what could happen. I mean, remember uh, what happened with the snowbank there and uh, Mr. Kweiserich uh, a few years ago, just one little moment lapse of uh, losing concentration and the race can get turned upside down. God, that Giro snowbank, that used to be part of my like everyday lexicon, like my everyday references. And now it feels like it was a hundred years ago. Literally, it feels like it's, you know, you're watching pictures of like Kopi pedaling on some dirt road. You know, that's how lo- that's how much time has passed be- between now and then. Again, time, time's a flat circle. Uh, last thing on the Giro talk before uh, we pivot here, Hoodie. Um, it sounds like the sprint battle, we, we were recording this did the day, stage uh, 18. There was supposed to be a sprint battle, but the breakaway stayed away. And I, you brought up an interesting point, which is just like, you know, all these sprint teams are on their knees. People are tired. There's not enough sprinters in the race to really challenge for the sprints. And this potentially is like a, a, a beacon of what might be coming in Grand Tour racing with how hard they are and like – how few teams are really targeting the sprints anymore that that we could be i wouldn't say seeing the death of the grand tour sprinter but like potentially a sea change in like how people are going to be approaching sprints yeah i mean it's been a trend really over the last 10 years as grand tours have gotten gradually harder you know it's like it started really 20 years ago when when the giro and the welta they brought on the zocalan the angliru started this kind of spicing up these stages because they needed to do something, especially with the Jira and the Welta, where they would just have one flat stage after another, after another. And it really was, you know, incredibly boring. I think it was in 2004, Alessandro Pataki won nine stages, nine sprint stages during one Giro. And he was second in another one. It was actually Freddy Rodriguez who had beat him in a sprint. So half of the stages finished in bunch sprints. And these were like back in the day when, like even like a stage like today, the Giro, they bring it through the wine country, some tricky roads, a couple of climbs, a, a tricky finishing uh, urban circuit. Back in those days, they would just put the Giro and the Welt on a highway. And it would just go straight for 150 Ks down, especially at the Welt that they used to do that. They would just take it out of one big city, put the race onto a hot, like a four lane highway and have them go straight with 45 degrees for 200 Ks, and then they have a bunch sprint. So people were losing interest in Grand Tours, and they decided to kind of spice things up. And now you have to wonder, have they gone too far? Because you already saw sprinters struggling to kind of get to the finish line because the, they started adding these Cat 2 climbs, you know, adding a lot of these uphill finales. And you just saw how riders and teams had to adapt. And really, you just don't see today really a team bringing like an old school sprint train to a race anymore. We saw it actually at this Giro a little bit because um, even though today wasn't a sprint, there there were actually seven kind of sprint opportunities, which is a lot in a modern Grand Tour these days. And like uh, Israel Premier Tech actually brought a sprint train for uh, Nizolo. He didn't win a stage, but they had the whole team working for him. And even uh, really with Quick Step with Cavendish, you know, he lost uh, his lead out man, Morkov, after he won his first stage. Morkov got sick and pulled out. 
that I think that cost Cavendish probably a one or two wins uh, during this Giro. But because there are only eight riders on the teams anymore, I don't know that that uh, you know if you if you have a Grand Tour uh, a GC contender, you know you're not going to bring a sprinter anymore. Like you will not see sprinters at Jumbo Visma, at UAE or Ineos at the Tour de France this summer. And in fact, those teams have jettisoned their sprinters largely. Like, uh, you know, Grunewege left Jumbo because he wanted to race the Tour, but he knew he never would when you have uh, Roglic uh, racing for the win. Plus, you got Wel Van Aert who can, like, smother the peloton 18 days out of the race and then still win the occasional bunch sprint anyway. Yeah. Well, a lot to follow in this Giro. Um, the sprinters, will they survive? Who is going to attack up to the Marmalada? Will Fred see highlights from his uh, honeymoon on television? Yes, I will. Um, and ultimately, who is going to take the Malia Rosa in Milano? It's been a thrilling race, and we're so psyched to have had you, Andy, and the rest of the Villeneuve's team to uh, help us go into it. So that's the end of Giro Talk. We're going to now pivot to talking about um, a more – um, somber topic. And again, if you don't want to hear it, have a great week, everyone. Please be safe. Hug a loved one. Have a great weekend. And, and we'll catch up with you last week. So Hoodie, this story broke about 10 days ago. I first heard about it on Thursday or Friday. But the long story short is on Wednesday, May 11th, the gravel racer Mariah Wilson was found murdered in a home in Austin, Texas. She had been shot, I believe, three times. And in the days following the murder, there was an investigation launched by the Austin Police Department. And uh, they eventually issued an arrest warrant for a woman named Caitlin Armstrong, who is the uh, longtime girlfriend of Colin Strickland. Colin has been on this podcast many times. We've written about Colin over and over again. We put him on the cover of the magazine. Um, and in the police affidavit, it said that, you know, Colin and Mariah Wilson had, you know, Colin had told the police that they had been in a short-term relationship in late 2021 when he was on a break from Caitlin Armstrong. He and Caitlin reconciled. She found out about it, was very upset and, you know, allegedly um, committed this murder. And that's where we stand today. You know, the cops do not have Caitlin Armstrong in custody. The latest report is that they believe she may have boarded a flight to New York. So there is a fugitive situation. The gravel scene, the American cycling scene in general is reeling from this story. And I've been thinking about this story constantly, every hour of every day since it happened. And the conclusion that I've come to is that this is the worst story in the history of American pro bike racing. Um, you know, when you cover this sport long enough, you are going to come across stories of loss of life. You know, if you follow this sport long enough, um, cyclists are hit by drivers and killed. Cyclists crash in races and die. Cyclists get sick. Cyclists die in auto accidents. All of these stories are tragic and awful. They're all equally tragic and awful. Um, the difference between those stories is that we kind of have precedent in our mind. We have like 
a bucket that we can file them in mentally. They're tragic, they're tragic, they're awful, they're all tragic, they're all awful, but we can sort of say, well, you know, I know that sometimes cyclists get run over by drivers. It doesn't make it right. It's still a tragedy and an injustice, but like there's sort of a precedent there. You know who to get angry at. You're angry at the driver. You're angry at the rules of the road. You know, we know that cyclists crash in races and die. It's happened before. We know sort of how to direct our grief. We know a bit of how to manage the feelings around this. This one is so outside the realm of what we've encountered in this sport. Um, you know, it's gun violence, it's murder, it's in cold blood. It is um, allegedly due to, you know, uh, you know what you would call first degree murder. And it has just, it just broken my heart. And it has been the worst thing I've ever had to cover in this sport and write about. And I don't know how you are feeling about it, Hoodie. I mean, I have seen a lot of opinions expressed online about the role that so-and-so played in it or who do we blame or who do we get angry at. I don't think I'm that far. I, I haven't made it that far with this one. All I can say is that for me, you know, this makes doping controversies or teams full, you know, this makes everything so insignificant. This is just, this, this one just completely breaks my heart. Yeah. Very moving, Fred. Uh, thanks for, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that because it's been interesting for, for me, you know, being distant over here in Europe, I mean, I'm based over here most of the year. And, and to be honest, I have not met any of those people that were involved in the story. I read, you know, I have not been really in close contact with anyone in the gravel scene. I know how tight knit community is and know how tight people are there and it probably you know reminds me of how mountain biking used to be back in the day you'd go to the races you'd see all your buddies and your friends and you would go it'd be like a kind of a moving caravan from race to race and uh, you could see how everybody was so impacted by this story and uh, I know it's it's difficult to keep your hat on as a journalist and then uh, but it must be difficult. I can just imagine for you and everyone involved in the gravel community, because you know, knew all these people. Um, I only knew them through the stories on Melanie's. I, I never met them. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're going to get Betsy on the podcast this coming week to talk a bit more about it. She knew Mariah extremely well. I had done multiple interviews with Mariah. I sat down, had lunch with her at Belgian Waffle Ride last year and did a great interview with her. She was very insightful. She talked a lot about the blending lines between, you know, elite cycling and Instagram influencing and how, you know, a lot of these gravel pros, they kind of, yeah, they're a racer, but they also have to Instagram influence and how un uncomfortable she was with that. You know, she wished it was sort of the old days where you just were sort of judged by your race reports and, and she felt very vulnerable putting herself online and it, it didn't come naturally to her. But, you know, I, I'll be full disclosure with everyone. I, you know... I believe it was December 2019, January 2020. I went to Austin for Velo News to do a cover story on Colin. And I spent four days hanging out with him. And I I met Caitlin Armstrong. Like we all had drinks and tacos one night. We sat at a table at a bar in Austin and and hung out and and talked. And I met Caitlin and you know, I <laughs> I keep, I keep thinking back on that night and was there anything I could have 
told, you know, that tipped me off about her character, allegedly that she would allegedly be capable of doing something like this. And of course, no, I don't remember anything of that nature. Um, but I guess that speaks to the point that you brought up, Hoodie, which says that this is a, a small community of people. You know, this is not a cast of tens of thousands of people where nobody knows each other. This is a small tight knit community where everyone knows each other and sees each other at the races and hangs out and creates personal relationships and friendships and rivalries and enemies that then become friends that then become racing rivals. And you throw it all in a blender and it ends up with a lot of people with a lot of passion who know each other very well. And when, when something like this happens, it's just a, just a meteor that crashes into it. It's a bomb that goes off. It's everyone is sad and everyone is impacted personally by it. And, you know, we have Unbound Gravel coming up here in 10 days and I'll be going out there and talking to people. And I'm really interested to see how the, the emotions and the attitude of the scene are. I don't know what to expect. I, I don't. I don't know how, what people are going to be feeling at that race or what emotional impact that race is going to have on them. Cause that race already delivers an emotional gut punch to some people. Cause it's so, so flipping hard. Yeah. You wonder how much an event like this can almost change a, a vibe of, a, of the scene. You know, who knows? I mean, I know how popular she was and just from people talking about her and, how powerful and violent and, and wrong this whole situation is, you know, you have to wonder almost, does that somehow change, you know, does it change the innocence of the gravel scene? You know, I don't know. I don't know. That's it'll be interesting to see how people react to him. And of course, everyone already is, you know, that last weekend when, when the race happened after the, the, the case, um, the community really came together and, and showed solidarity for her and her family but decided to race, decided to keep going. And uh, I think it's going to be very intense at that race to Unbound because that's such a marquee event. Yeah, same. And, you know, the investigation is going to continue and new information, new perspective may come to light. I think a lot of us are still waiting to hear from Colin. You know, he put out a, a statement sort of clarifying his relationship with both uh, Mariah and with the alleged killer, Caitlin. And, uh, but, you know, I think a lot of people are still waiting for him to say more about that. And, and I don't know, we're going to, we're going to have to wait and see. We've sort of divulged the information that everyone knows at this point and, and everyone is still sort of reacting to it. But in this story is so far from over. I think it's very appropriate that my almost three-year-old daughter is just going completely bonkers in the background. And if you hear crying and screaming on the uh, audio, we are still in the record from home phase of the uh, Villa News podcast. So apologies for that. But we're going to continue to cover it and we're going to seek a lot of perspective and emotion because that's what we do at Villa News. Honestly, that's I've, I've been thinking, you know, even though I'm not on the Villa News team full time anymore, I've been thinking a lot about this story through the lens of the community and the role that media plays in it and the role, frankly, that Villeneuve plays in it. And, you know, Betsy knows these people. She goes to the races. She talks to them. She forms personal relationships with them. I did that too. I have a very strong personal relationship with Colin. I had one. And when something like this happens, you know, 
it's a story that just that that impacts everyone. So we're gonna be out at Unbound and we're gonna talk to a lot of people. And you know what? We're gonna hug people. We're gonna cry. Like it's going to be an it's going to be a very emotional situation. And we'll just you know we'll let you know in the podcast um, how the gravel scene is doing in the wake of this. Which again, like I said at the top of this segment, this is the worst story I have ever come across in my. Almost twenty years covering covering cycling. Um, I don't know if I don't know if you feel the same. Yeah, I would completely agree because it's such a personal tragedy. Uh, it is just makes no sense. Uh, well, I'm personally glad you'll be there, Fred. I know uh, put your heart and soul into everything you do, and uh, even more so with uh, how close this is to you, uh, just at the at the human level. Uh, I'll be looking forward to. Uh, your reports and, and listening to more of your podcasts. It's good to have you back. Well, thanks to everyone for tuning in. Um, thanks to Andrew Hood for calling in. Hoodie, it's been too long. It's so, it's just a joy to talk bike racing with you. And yeah, please keep listening to the podcast. We'll have some more updates this coming week. And then we're going to head out to Unbound and talk to some people out there. So for Andrew Hood, this is Fred Dreyer. Thanks so much for listening to the Velo News Podcast. All right. Thank you.